Welcome to Simplify. I'm Caitlin Schiller. And I'm Ben Schumann Solar. So, this is one of my favorite interviews that I have ever done. And that's interesting because it's not a super positive one in terms of its topic, but then it is incredibly positive in terms of how it makes you feel about life and death. Yeah. It's it's really, really, really special. And it's different and been waiting for the right moment to release it. So let me just tell you about it. Today's guest is Catherine Mannix. She is a hospice physician and she'll explain really beautifully what she does in the interview because I actually wasn't totally sure what a hospice physician did until I talked to her. But basically, she works every day with people who are at the end of their lives. They might have a terminal illness, or maybe they're very old and ill. Whatever they are experiencing, it's Catherine Mannix's job to take care of their symptoms and take care of the individual people that they are in order to give them the best end of life possible. Yeah, if you've ever lost anybody, I guess everybody at some point will lose somebody. People who've worked with an amazing hospice worker, that's a really special thing. And I think you're right. I mean, it's a really special interview because... It's hard to talk about death in a way that doesn't feel sort of medicinal or clinical or also mm-hmm. a little bit freaky and scary and fear mongery. Um, I think, you know, the pandemic means it's come up a lot more. And I think we got to talk about it. We do. And that's why Catherine Mannix wrote this book. Her book, by the way, is called With the End in Mind. And she wanted to help people understand what the end of life is often like. And I feel pretty confident that anybody listening to this will walk away with a a calmer approach to their own mortality and also probably more gratitude for an engagement with the life that they're living right now. That's what it did for me anyway. Right. There's a lot of good stuff in here. I guess to help people focus as we go into the interview, what should people really pay attention to in the interview? What's one thing they should look out for? Um, I think what's really unique about her book and about this interview is that she will tell you, and this is really utilitarian, but it's interesting, she will tell you what death looks like and what the human organism goes through as death approaches. And um, you'll also come away with some practical approaches for what you can do right now to prepare for your own death and live your life more fully and how you can be a good companion for those who are at the end of their lives. Right. Then let's play the tape. And don't forget, everybody, to stick around for the bookend. That's where we're going to make three book recommendations related to the topic. So if you want to dive into more on this, then you can. You can. And one more thing. If you feel a little iffy about listening to this, if death makes you uncomfortable, you know, that makes sense. But I'd say let yourself sit with the anxiety for just a moment and stay with us for a few minutes. Stay with Catherine. I promise you that she has a way of really putting a person at ease And this topic is so important and can be such a beautiful call to appreciate our lives and very significantly the people in them now. So let's do it. Here's Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Thanks so much for joining me today. Good morning. and Thank you so much for inviting me. You know, before we get started, could you introduce yourself the way that you like to be introduced? Because you are a palliative care physician. You're obviously a human being and so much more. But the word palliative care, the term palliative care is something that I think that a lot of people listening have heard, but may not have thought about a lot for lots of different reasons. Could you just describe what it is that you do, what your background is? Okay. So palliative care is really about looking after symptoms of illnesses rather than trying to cure illnesses. And originally it started uh, with people with advanced and incurable cancer. And so very much was dealing with the end of life and also the context of the person. So we're interested in their family and their domestic situations so that we can help them to live 
the best life they can live for whatever length of time is remaining. And the other thing that's really lovely about working in palliative care is that we work in teams. Nobody is trying to do every part of the care that a person needs on their own. Right. And it sounds like you really you really need that team. This would be a tremendously difficult job to do where you expected to bear even 50% of everything that goes into getting someone prepared for either the end of their lives or or helping them through a really difficult time in it on your own. I think that's absolutely right, that um, trying to do it single-handed is, well, it's silly. We don't do anything else in life really single-handed, mm. do we? We belong to other people who support us in all the other parts of our lives. Right. And in our working life, I think it's important that people have the integrity and the humility to know that we can't be everything to everybody, that that we need support too, that we have colleagues who are better at some aspects of this job, better qualified in some aspects of the work that needs to be done. So leaning on each other and supporting each other holds the whole thing together. Yeah, I can imagine. So could you just ground me in, in what you do when you walk into a room with someone for the first time and who is having terrible pain of some sort? So that might be, for example, a hospital consultation. So we start off by going in to introduce ourselves. Um, We'll really want to know what that person's story has been so far. Now, people get really fed up telling the story of how they first got diagnosed with a, a difficult illness. So what we're trying to do is not get them to tell the whole story again, but tell us how it's been for them to be the person in the situation of discovering about this illness, tolerating the treatments of that illness, finding themselves in the position that they're now in with this difficult symptom, this pain or nausea or whatever. So we understand not just where it hurts, but how having a pain like that impacts on the person's sense of self, on the things that they're able to do, on the way they're able to relate to their family and friends. So, you know, if you're um, assessing somebody who's a granddad and his grandchildren usually like to use him as a climbing frame Mm. and now he's got pains in his bones because of his cancer having spread, then that really interferes with being a climbing frame. And that's a really important component of his relationship with his grandchildren. So we need to think about his pain, but we need to think about his grandparenting as well. That's such a lovely way to put it. Yeah. You know, I think that in in reading your book with the end in mind, I was fascinated to learn that death really has a pattern and it's relatively gentle. It tends to look a certain way for a lot of people. There are these milestones or harbingers of what's to come. Could you speak a little bit about that, what death tends to look like? Gladly, because really that's why I wrote the book, to try to refamiliarize people with that process. So... I think by way of introduction, I'd say that almost everybody is familiar with the way that pregnancy and birth is a natural process that follows the same kind of pattern from one person to another. So any woman who's given birth to a baby feels that she's had a completely unique experience. But any midwife or obstetrician who's attending the woman who's having the baby is seeing the same pattern that they always see, right? So at the end of life, it turns out that there's a different physiological process that follows a familiar pattern from person to person. 
So the earliest thing that people start to notice is just they're running out of energy. And as time goes by, what we find is that they sleep more and are awake less. So, so far, so not very exciting and so not very Hollywood. Towards the very end of people's lives, what we find is that they're mainly asleep all of the time. Uh, They may wake up intermittently, but something interesting now starts to happen during the periods of sleep, which is that they dip into being unrousable, becoming completely unconscious. Mm. But when they wake up afterwards, they tell us that they've had a lovely sleep. So it seems that we don't notice when we slip into unconsciousness and when we waken from it again. It's just not obvious to us at all. Wow. So at the very end of somebody's life, what we let them uh, expect and what we help their family to understand is that they will just be gradually slipping into deeper and deeper unconsciousness. And as we become progressively more unconscious, the different bits of the brain switch off. So the only bit eventually that's still working is the bit that controls our breathing. That's right down at the back of the brain, near the top of the spinal cord. Mm -hmm. And that bit of the brain just sets up reflex breathing patterns. And the breathing runs between deep and shallow and back to deep again back to shallow again, and between fast patterns and slow patterns. Now, it's important that people know about this because when you're deeply unconscious, you don't any longer notice your airway, you don't notice that your vocal cords are fully open or partly closed. And because of that, you might make noises when you're breathing. So if you're breathing through vocal cords that are partly closed, you might make noises that could sound like sighing, could sound like groaning, could make your family very upset to think that you're having pain that's making you groan. And we need to remind families that that is just automatic, reflex, unconscious breathing. It isn't pain, it isn't distress. And it's really important families know this or afterwards they're left thinking that this person that they loved died uncomfortably and that's their memory afterwards. Mm. So that should be a very reassuring noise for the family to hear, but it will only reassure them if we explain to them what it is. So here's this person now with their breathing swinging between fast and slow, between deep and shallow. And then there start to be pauses in the breathing, sometimes quite long pauses. And sometimes the next in-breath is a bit shuddery. And then in a period of quite gentle breathing, there'll be an out-breath that just doesn't have another in-breath afterwards. You don't notice as that final breath is taken that it's the final breath. You just realise when there isn't another breath. It's as gentle as that. So no sudden rush of pain at the end or uh, a sudden alertness where you sit up and tell the family secrets, you know, where the treasure was buried or that you never told anybody they were adopted or all the things that happen on TV dramas. It's so much more gentle than that. So... We can't stop it from being sad for people. It's a farewell and it is terribly, terribly sad. But we can help people not to be afraid of the process itself. Yeah. Thank you so much for describing that. I was so surprised to read about how how gentle, in fact, it can be. Um, and now that we've sort of grounded the experience of what it might look like to be at the end of someone's life, what are the fears that unite people? What do they tend to tell you and what do their families tend to tell you? Okay. So, well, 
I guess it's a mixture of things and it's as individual as people are individual. So the thing we just talked about was the physical process. And people are very afraid of being distressed. But of course, we're all dying of something. And the experience of dying is accompanied by the experience of having whatever that illness Mm. is. So we really have to work hard to make sure that the symptoms of the illness are well controlled before the very end part of life starts. Right. So the person enters their dying as comfortable as possible. So that's the first thing. People worry about their symptoms. People worry about their families. They worry about their survivors. They worry about their bereavement and particularly where it's the person who's usually been the person who consoles everybody else in the family. They do this kind of double guilt thing of I'm going to die and make them all sad. And I'm not going to be there to console them in their Mm. sadness. And that is a very, very sad thought for people, as is the idea of saying farewell. And depending on the person's beliefs, many people believe they're saying farewell forever. So again, that's very, very sad. And there isn't a magic panacea for the sadness. It's It's part of loving people is losing people and feeling the grief of that. I guess that the experience of grief is the experience of having that love and having no nowhere to put it anymore. And people who are dying feel anticipatory grief for the loss of their relationships. And then there's that existential fear of, well, what will it be like not to be? Or what will it be like to be in a completely different way from the way I currently understand being? depending on what the person's belief about any kind of experience after death might be. And there is no way of comforting that kind of anxiety. So the fears are often about how dying will be, how my family will be afterwards, what will happen to me. And sometimes the fear is of being forgotten. And that's a really important thing as well, that people need to be reassured that there will be people who will remember them and think fondly of them. Mm -hmm. It's big, isn't it? It's the kind of huge existential what's it all about consideration. And it's it's almost too hard to hold all of it in one mind all at the same time. And yet that's what people are starting to do as they really contemplate their own mortality. And it seems like such an important thing to do and that we don't do enough. And I understand that that's exactly why you wrote this book. And it was it was really a gift to read it because there are many aspects that I, I hadn't really thought about before either. You know, I was wondering, there are these people who come, you have so many beautiful examples throughout the book of of bravery towards the end of their lives and and even fear. Have you had anyone that you can remember who just seemed really ready for it, but even before you prepped them through it? And what was different about that person? Oh, that's, that's a really great question. And yes, we do meet people who are ready. And again, they're different in their individual ways, but there are some patterns to recognize. So one is that people who have spent part of their lives getting ready to die are somehow in a better place to do that. So it may be that it's a young person who's known all through their life that their life expectancy will be limited. Or it may be that it's a very, very old person who having passed their 90th birthday has thought, well, how many more years can there be 
anyway. So people starting to think about that. There are some people who are very, very comforted by the idea of an afterlife and a re-encounter with very dear people who've died before them. Although it's worth saying that um, for people with a kind of lukewarm religion that they're not really quite sure whether they believe it or not, that doesn't seem to be terribly consoling, that they're, they're partly not sure they believe it and then they're partly worried about the hell and damnation aspects of whatever it is that they partly believe. So lukewarm faith doesn't seem to be terribly helpful at all. And in fact, of very devout atheists, you know, people who are absolutely sure they're going to oblivion, some of them can be as comforted by that thought as very devout people of faith are consoled by the idea of, of an afterlife. It's absolutely fascinating. We're all so individual. But something that does happen as we move through life, I guess, is that journey from early innocence into experience and to some extent cynicism and then we become more rounded as we become more wise and those people who've reached that phase of life are much more able to face dying and the thing about wisdom is that universally across all the different wisdom traditions people come to understand that it's not about me Mm. that it's you know the sun will still rise when I am no longer here Um, and that somehow it's been a privilege to be alive in the first place. And having been alive, I am subject to death like anybody else or anything else that is alive. So it's it's a wisdom thing. Right. Um, This movement toward the understanding that it's not about the individual, it's not about you, it's about the privilege of being alive. How do you carry that into your life? Do you know, I'd love to tell you that I have a mindfulness practice (laughs) and that, um, you know, every day, every moment I'm grateful um, because if I was doing it well, that's how life would be. But I I do think that having walked amongst people at the very ends of their lives for so long is life changing and that many of my colleagues who work in palliative and end of life care and and not just specialists in palliative care you know community nurses and care home staff and people who just deal with death on a regular basis um, do develop an awareness of the things in our lives that are gift that are blessings that are things to be very grateful for and I think that I notice that a lot of my colleagues in palliative care tend to be people who will see that the glass is half full. Mm. And I think that practice probably comes from just observing that so often in the people that we serve. That's that's really beautiful. Yeah. Hey, just a short break in my conversation with Catherine to remind you that we are now in season seven of Simplify. So whether you just joined us or you've been a fan for a while, there's a lot of previous episodes that you can listen to. A lot. As a matter of fact, I've talked with so many wonderful authors since we launched in 2017 that sometimes even I forget what we talked about and need a little reminder. And this is when I like to turn to the shortcast version of Simplify. Shortcasts are Blinkist's new audio thing. They're short versions of podcast episodes crafted around those episodes' key ideas. Each one is curated and built in collaboration with the original host to make sure it's true to their unique voice, style, and ideas. For example, we've got Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History, Dr. Lori Santos's The Happiness Lab, and also Simplify with me. 
As with most things, it's better if you just try it out yourself. So go to Blinkist.com simplify, click try a Blinkist in the top right hand corner, and you can try it for free for 14 days just by entering the code Mannix. That's Blinkist.com simplify. Use the code Mannix. And you can listen to shortened versions of all six seasons before this one of Simplify. All right, now back to my talk with Catherine. So then it sounds like having having some sort of gratitude practice or at least pulling it into one's life whenever possible is beneficial for everyone, not not just whether you are at the end of your life or watching someone be at the end of theirs. But in addition to having a gratitude practice, what are a few questions that we should be asking ourselves to prepare for our own deaths? When we're well, I think probably what we need to be thinking about is the the practicalities. So have I written a will? You're never too young to write a will. Mm. Um, have I talked with my family about the sort of funeral that I might like? Those can be good places to start. And I would encourage people to do that at a family gathering. So, you know, for uh, the American Thanksgiving holidays or for Christmas holiday or Hanukkah, whenever families gather, to just take 15 minutes and think about the things that we need to know about each other. Because if any of us became so sick that we were unable to speak for ourselves, we are the people who will be asked to speak for each other. So do I know what you would want if you couldn't tell the doctors and nurses what you wanted? So that kind of preparatory conversation when we're well is really helpful. Um, The other thing that we see at the very end of people's lives is a rush for sorting out relationships. And I think the best day to sort out relationships is probably today. So the Chinese have a a saying. um, They say, when's the best time to plant a tree? And the answer is 10 years ago. Hmm. And when's the second best time to plant a tree? And the answer is today. So let's not delay. Let's not wait. What we see consistently is people wanting to sort out relationships, wanting either to offer forgiveness or to ask for forgiveness. So I'm sorry and I forgive you are really common messages at the very end of life. Well, don't wait till you're dying because you mightn't have the good fortune to have a deathbed and get the chance to have that conversation. So why not sort it out now? Mm. Um thank you is a really, really important message. And people who are looking back over their lives feel huge gratitude and want to be able to thank many, many people. But the most important message is I love you. And although we may say that and may use those words to people with whom we're very intimate, actually, we feel something that is love for people who are more distant than that. And somehow being sick enough to die can make us brave enough to say it. But actually, if we're brave enough to say it anyway, it enhances those relationships even more. So why not do it now? Why not just make a list of all those people who mean huge things to us and then tell them, send them an email, write them a letter, drop them a text, have a cup of tea with them, sit down and just let them know how much they mean. Nobody minds being told that they're special and they're loved. You will never upset somebody by saying that to them. Mm. I'm getting teary over here, Catherine. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's lovely. It's it's a it's a good teary. I'm just, you know, pulling myself together for a second. Um 
So that's that, those are some things that, that someone who is suffering, who is on their deathbed, can start doing. And you also handily gave people who are not yet at that point some things that they could be doing. What about on the other end, if if you find yourself a family member of someone who is on their deathbed, what can that side be doing for someone who is suffering to make the end better for them? That's a really, really important question. And I like that you use the word suffering there because we suffer sadness and anxiety and discomfort. And even though we've got very good science of symptom management and we can reduce physical symptoms to a stage where at least they can be tolerated, even if we haven't got rid of the symptoms altogether. Suffering is something different from having a pain or being short of breath. Suffering is about the loss and the fear and the meaning of the experience. And so when we're dealing with a family member who who is nearing the end of their life or a dear friend is nearing the end of their life they don't want to sit and talk about that all of the time and yet they report feeling very lonely when nobody will ever talk to them about it mm. so i think it's really important to be able to say listen i don't know how this experience is for you but if it would help for you to talk to me about it i'm really happy to listen And then we have to follow through by listening. And listening is hard because it means not trying to correct somebody, not trying to make it right, not trying to fix it, not speaking, just listening. And when we speak, say, tell me more. And is there something else you'd like to tell me about that? And help me to understand that a little bit better. So we're not trying to sort it out because it's not sortable. It's all the stuff that's in their mind that is far easier for them to explore and compartmentalize and put into order if they're able to say it out loud and have it reflected back to them. So the thing that we can do is to offer to listen. And the thing that we can also offer to do is to be normal. So if this is a person who we always had a relationship with that was based on lots of laughing and lots of really bad jokes and teasing each other and saying unspeakably bad things to each other because nobody else can say those things and then laughing about it afterwards, that's still that person. That's still that relationship. They may not be as strong as they were. They may not have as much hair as they used to have. Uh, They may not have as much breath as they used to have, but it's still that person on the inside. And a lot of sick people talk about how everybody tips their head to one side and looks at them with sorrowful eyes, and it just drives them mad. Right. So be normal. Um, In the day when you're not listening to their outpouring of their sorrow, just be you, just be normal. And if silly and jokes is part of what you do, then do that. But don't let silly and jokes override the moment where the person might want to say something more serious. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned before that the holidays might be might be a good time to talk with your family about what you want at the end of your life. Hmm. Um how do you start that conversation? 
It's really hard, isn't it? So yeah. uh, you, I guess one of the things to do is to suggest in advance that we're going to talk about this when we gather and it's not going to take longer than 30 minutes. So we promise that we're going to do it early on in the gathering and then we're going to do something really lovely together afterwards rather than knowing all the way through dinner that, you know, after dessert we're going to talk about death. Um, that's kind of going to dampen the feasting, isn't it, a little bit. So do it with the uh, do it with the starters or do it with the, the drinks before dinner. You may know that there are a couple of organisations that have really uh, maxed out on this. But I guess if you wanted to use your own trigger, if you're one of those families who make homemade Christmas crackers and you want to put your own questions in, <sighs> um, what's more important to you at the very end of your life? how many more months and weeks and days you might survive with lots and lots of intensive treatment or the quality of your living with not such intense treatment. So would you go for quality or would you go for length of life if you had to make that choice? And, you know, if you're a young person with your life before you or you're the parent of young children, you might make one decision and as you get older and have fewer responsibilities, you might make a different decision. So you don't decide once and then that's it for all time. These are questions that need to be revised over time. Uh, Do you want to be buried or cremated? Do you want a natural burial? Uh, Those sorts of things about funerals. Uh, Do you want lots of treatment? What's your view about cardiopulmonary resuscitation, which has a very, very low success rate in people who are already very, very ill, but is a very intrusive thing to happen at a deathbed? Um, So these are really important things for families to talk about. But you can start light. Um, What song would you like at your funeral is a good opener. That gets you into the death zone without it being too gloomy. Mm -hmm. Do you want people to wear black at your funeral or should they wear lots of colours? Will your funeral serve champagne or will it serve coffee? Uh, There are ways into this that then allow people to then develop the theme. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. That was all such wonderfully concrete information around a topic that seems so amorphous and billowy. If there's one central message about about end of life that you wish everyone listening would take away with them, what would that be? That the process itself is natural and gentle, that getting symptoms sorted out early is really key to being comfortable during the very end of life and that suffering seems to be more about the emotions that are unresolved than about the physical symptoms that are unresolved. So let's deal with difficult relationships and sadnesses in our lives as early in our lives as we can, as soon as as we can seek a reconciliation, because those seem to become the very big things at the very end of life. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And then I guess we'll do the the one sort of cosmetic question. Are Are there any books that you recommend either about your field or that add nuance to your field or something that you've just read recently that you really love? So I'd recommend a couple of... that. There, there are lots and lots of wonderful books about dying and death, and many of them written a long time ago. Um, the book that inspired me to write this book is Atul Gawande's Being Mortal, and I would absolutely recommend 
that people read his magnificent book. Um, and the book that really moved me further is a book by Richard Holloway called Waiting for the Last Bus. And it's a wonderful reflection by a very wise man now in his ninth decade about having lived and about knowing now that the end of his life is approaching. And it's a really, really beautiful uh, piece of writing. So those are two books that I'd very strongly recommend out of a very, very strong catalogue, really. Great. Catherine Mennix, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. It's been such a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. And I hope that our conversation has helped people to be thoughtful, maybe a little bit tearful, but perhaps also uplifted and a bit more optimistic about that which lies in wait for all of us that actually in the end it's probably not as bad as you're expecting i hope so too thank you welcome to the bookend where we end with books yes with books at the end of this long existential journey. That was definitely a journey, that interview. I didn't want to do the bookend intro very enthusiastically. It felt like it wouldn't match the content. Yeah, it's quieter. It's more pensive. Catherine just has such a soothing way of speaking that it's hard to bring a whole bunch of like bouncy prosody and optimism to it without sounding really weird. Right, right. Without all of the bounding optimism in my voice, I still want to say that I... I feel very good about this interview, very positive. Um, I think the thing that struck me, and I recorded this interview over a year ago now, and we were waiting for the right moment to to release it because we had been living through pandemic, and it, I wasn't sure if running something that had details about the death rattle in it was the right material for a respiratory illness pandemic hitting hitting the the world. But I. The things that I really remember about this interview and that struck me again listening back to it was this idea that belonging is the most important thing. She says we belong to the other people who support us. And that really, really struck me because it's something that I had to really learn. Um, and I keep relearning all the time. And it's it's important to be reminded of that. And I, I loved that that she says to sort out your relationships now and don't wait. Tell people that you're sorry, that they're forgiven, that they're special, that you love them. Because that's all that really matters at the end of the day. Yeah. It's also interesting that the breathing is what Catherine focused on in this interview in a really beautiful way, right? You, you slip into an unconsciousness and then you stop breathing. There's this insane connection. What is breathing? It's something you do all the time. I mean, think about all the mindfulness. How do, why, why does mindfulness focus on breathing? Because it's the thing that's always with you. You will always have breath. Yeah. What I wanted to bring out was it's an interesting parallel how she brings up What's the other thing in life that's a unique experience like death? Giving birth, right? Mm. I thought that was pretty Mm -hmm. cool, life and death. But also how it's not Hollywood. I haven't given birth in my life, but I've I've been there. (laughs) And the whole thing that you realize is it's not Hollywood at all. You don't have a baby in a taxi cab. It happens very, 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 very rarely. Um, And this idea of like you actually can make certain decisions about how you go through these important moments in life these one-of-a-kind mm. moments is yeah. actually super empowering, right? And you can take a few minutes and write down what are the things I'm most terrified about the moment I die, knowing that the actual moment isn't so scary. 
So what can I do around that moment to make me feel better about it when I think about it? I think is really actually a cool exercise. Yeah. Preparation. Preparation. She says, you know, write a will. You're never too young to write a will. Tell your family what you want, what your wishes are. Do you know what song you want played at your funeral, Ben? No, I don't know if I want any song. I don't know. The funeral is less interesting maybe than the stuff before it from this interview, the moment of death. And and what do I want that moment to be like? And I think, um, just as Catherine says, if you can be surrounded by the people you love and connected with, I think that would be a really special, special moment. I should be so lucky, I would say. Yeah, you know, we all should. So should we talk about books? Yeah, let's talk about books. There's no like easy transition, but we can just get into it. Well, I think one transition is that like reading and learning about a thing that makes you a little bit anxious or you're not sure about is definitely a way that I manage my own worries. So we've got books to help you do that if you're still, you know, thinking about death and feel worried. So, all right, books. I got a couple. The one that I am really excited to read It's called You're Gonna Die by Courtney Finn and Jackie Purcell. So this is more morbid, but also not quite as intense and heavy as a lot of the other, you know, books about death. It's funny. It's written really warmly. It's not as philosophical. But what it is, is that a coroner asked a few thousand people about, you know, their ideas about death, embarrassing questions, slightly morbid questions about the end. So, yeah, it's just like a lighter look at a heavier topic. Okay. The book that I brought is called When Breath Becomes Air mm-hmm. by Paul Kulanati. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Kulanati. Um, so basically, Kulanati was a neurosurgeon. And he gets lung cancer when he's 36 years old. So one day he's a doctor, and the next day he's a patient, basically. So the book is about how he's a medical student. He's super passionate and interested in, you know, considering that everything dies, um, what, what's a meaningful life, right? Then all of a sudden he's facing his own mortality and he died while working on this book. So it's a pretty emotional look, I guess, at the whole story because you come to really root for him and you know, he doesn't make Mm. it. He doesn't survive. Um, and I love the title also when breath becomes air, we talked about breath. Mm. I, I really like that. You have another book. Cool. That's a classic. I've never read it. Yeah. Uh, speaking of classics, there is On Death and Dying by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. So she's a really famous psychologist of the late 20th century. And it's where we get the five stages of what we often think of as grief. But really, the five stages of grief are actually the five stages of death. So those are denial and isolation, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Kubler-Ross initially thought those stages through as what a person who was dying would go through, not what people who were mourning or grieving would go through. But I think they're probably pretty applicable to both experiences. Anyway, um, there are interviews in here, conversations. You get a better understanding of how death affects a patient and the patient's family. And it's it's actually a pretty hopeful book. So this is a classic. It's called On Death and Dying. It's by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Yeah, sounds good. I think those are three three solid books, actually. This is a topic... Everybody thinks about it at some point. I think it's important to add to the reading list. Yeah. It'll make you pause for sure. Mm. And that's a good thing. It is. All right. So that's it. Simplify was produced by me, Caitlin Schiller, Ines Blasius, Ben Schumann-Stoller, and Marta Medvisak. That's right. And we asked two things after you listen to an episode. One, share it with somebody. Just send it to somebody. I mean, this topic is something you can always send to a parent or a loved one 
cousin, a friend, it'll definitely start a conversation. And the second thing is, leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts. It helps us get Simplify in front of more people. And it's also pretty much all Caitlin lives for. (laughs) At this point, yeah, man. (laughs) Um, By the way, this episode is brought to you by Blinkist. Blinkist is an app, but you can also find us on the web or an Android store or an iOS store. We take the key insights from the world's best nonfiction books and now podcasts and distill them into these little capsules that you can read or listen to in 15 to 20 minutes. Right. So if you want to hear all that stuff and you don't have Blinkist yet, you can go and try Blinkist. You can go to Blinkist.com slash simplify. Go to the top right hand corner where it says try Blinkist. Tap on that button that says try Blinkist and then type in the code Manix, M-A-N-N-I-X, Manix, and you'll get 14 days of free Blinkist. All right. So if you want to tell us what you thought about the interview or Catherine Mannix and how amazing she is or recommend a book or anything else, we are on Twitter. I am at Caitlin Schiller and Ben is at Bisto. And you can email us at podcast at Blinkist.com. Cool. Well, Caitlin, thanks for doing this interview. Pretty cool. I think yeah. this was a special one. Me too. All right. You're special, Ben. Aw. All right. Checking out. Bye. Checking out. Checking out.